Welcome to Political OD episode 27. We're a month since the last one. We'd like to think things have moved on. I'm not sure they've moved on greatly. For, for all the speed September hit us with, there hasn't been a great deal this past month, Owen, has there? No, I think just that right at the start of September, there was kind of a burst of activity and everybody getting back to their offices and rushing out press releases and uh, kind of wanting to give the impression that they were going to hit the ground running and do a great deal in this new term, as it were. But that has all kind of abated a bit and uh, come to nothing, as we're quite accustomed to in Northern Ireland. One of the uh, topics that has, I suppose, forced its way onto the agenda this past week uh, is the topic of vaccine passports, where discussion seems to be have been around why don't we have one rather than why do we need one? I think that would be a fair assessment of the uh, yeah, media coverage it, at the moment. It, it's kind of, it, it's puzzling the timing of it because we've had quite a high level of, of COVID, so we're told for the past few weeks. And indeed, we've had um, deaths and, and people in ICU and everything else, but it's beginning to, uh, it's beginning to at least level out and, and I think uh, decrease a little bit. But this row over vaccine passports has come to the fore over the past week. It's it's almost as if it really it is just something for the parties to disagree on and 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 to have a a bit of a tussle about rather than something that's really justified in terms of uh, you know policy considerations or or something that's a pressing issue in and of itself. Well, I think for the SLP, it's been an opportunity to have a pop at the DUP and Sinn Féin as the two big parties. You're making these decisions, so kind of creating some sort of political space for themselves. But I don't see any science in this uh, discussion. You know, if you look at England, which has not got a pass, any vaccine passport, and has broadly speaking opened up. I was in London uh, just two weeks ago, and uh, the place was uh, significantly... Uh, more active uh, than it had been uh, in July when I'd been over before restrictions uh, eased on the 19th. Uh, London was buzzing, basically absolutely buzzing. Everywhere was was full. I'm not saying packed because you haven't got the tourism that was once in London, but you know there were plenty of Londoners about and they were all out, bars, uh, restaurants, everywhere. Uh, Leicester Square was full, uh, as full as you'd have seen it uh, any other time of the year before uh, COVID hit. Uh, that has not been matched by spikes in any particular age group in, in, in England. Well, I, I can kind of understand the argument, and I think that you've heard a little bit in, in England this kind of idea that if there is a surge in the winter, perhaps we will need these vaccination passports. And in England, they have the software and the app and the records and stuff so that this kind of information can be used. And in fact, for in events during the summer, whether, you know, you're talking about the, the European Championships, uh, yeah. the football tournament that was, um, a lot of the matches were held in England, uh, concerts, that kind of thing. Actually, the organisers did voluntarily um, use this data. And, and in Northern Ireland, uh, we're really, uh, part, part of the problem, we, we can talk about vac vaccine passports uh, till we're blue in the face, but we apparently only of the, the COVID cert NI app or whatever it is, and that's only for foreign travel. And we're told that it is not suitable as a vaccination passport. I, I, I can't really understand why, because, you know, but what we need is a barcode for people to 
um, to, well, to that's show not, that's, that's not actually true. I mean, the, the proof of it's only proof of vaccination. Mm-hmm. So anybody with an NHS app in England is able to draw up vaccination history. Uh, which obviously also shows more recently your COVID vaccinations. So they're able to simply pull up the page and say, here are the COVID vaccinations. And you can flash that at the door and say, I have had my COVID vaccinations. So the proof of vaccination, which is all it is, is already integrated into the NHS app in England. We're not even close to having that sort of app in Northern Ireland. Uh, I mean, there's barely web access to many of our GPs uh, in terms of, uh, of of services. No, we're not, although, I mean, the, the, the travel app, what it consists of essentially um, is a barcode that you scan with another device and then essentially it will bring up the information in terms of a, a sort of a, a PDF of a, a physical certificate, but we don't have that kind of detailed electronic information that makes all of these things seamless and uh, allows you to, to, to use these systems. Why, why, therefore, are we not having a discussion around that rather than should we have a vaccine passport? Should we, have a, should we not have a vaccine passport when we don't even have the means to actually implement well, that quickly? There, there, there's, there's the means to implement is one thing, but also the question of why well, do indeed. we need one? In the first place, because there, there have been two kind of reasons that have been pushed to the, pushed to the front. One is that uh, it's an encouragement for uh, people to get uh, a vaccination. Well, that that must clearly be aimed at the younger age groups, the the I suppose what eighteen to thirty age group, uh, where vaccination take up has been lowest. But what's interesting, if you look at the NISRA site, is that that is not the group currently has the highest rates of positive tests. The highest rates of positive tests are school kids. Um, and, and perhaps you might say their they're parents. <laughs> the, the age profile seems to be that, that, that age group of... Yes, it's been around my age, are you Yeah, saying? exactly. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're the, the little darlings come home uh, with infection and give it to the parents. Uh, but, but, you know, that, 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 that nightclub generation, if you like, uh, is simply not... Uh, very high. And and equally, when you look at the profile of those uh, who are in hospital at the present time, more than there's a percentage that that simply uh, isn't identified. But if you put that into all the rest, more than half of everybody in hospital at the present time are over 70. And those are the groups that are the most vaccinated in society. So, yes, we've got a low uptake of vaccination, but I don't actually specifically see any science or medical reason as to why that is a problem that then demands the the vaccine um, certificate or or passport or whatever you want to to describe it as. Um, and, And also the timing, as you say, is also odd simply because in the South, which the SDLP always like to, to give reference to, the, the passport was brought in as a function of easing of restrictions. In other words, it was a way of actually, you know, if you like, uh, jumping over um, the restrictions and, and getting access to hospitality that you would not otherwise uh, have had, but it was within a restricted society. At the moment, we don't have those restrictions. You would be taking away freedoms. I do think that's a good point. It's very 
different thing to um, take away uh, a freedom that people have had and allow other people to continue to do it rather than to sort of say, well, we will open this up and these are the conditions under which we will, uh, under which we will open it up. So as usual, it's not seemingly a very well thought through uh, policy, even if it's a valid issue, it's not being discussed at a particularly intelligent level and the nuances of it are being you know just swept aside really and sound bites brought to the fore we want it we don't want it and that's what we're reduced to really yeah and the and the the second reason that is sort of given is because it may be needed at some point because of you know again the threat to the health service I'll, i'll take us back again to December in 2019, when the medical profession in Northern Ireland were saying that the health service was a breaking point and was going to collapse if something wasn't done. Um, so you know, the crisis in the health service is there, has been there. Um, just shouting COVID, putting the onus on people to save the health service, where there doesn't seem to be the leadership management or plan there to see our way through that crisis uh, from the health uh, department? That's why it was particularly dangerous in the first place to introduce this kind of idea that the state of the health service should determine what we can do in the rest of society. Because the way that it's been presented, um, you would almost be forgiven for thinking that the NHS was in root health in December 2019, and then that COVID hit it, that then it ran into all the problems that we have subsequently seen with uh, waiting lists, with hospitals overrun, with with A&Es particularly under pressure. I mean, partly the reasons that A&Es are are under pressure is because other health problems have been neglected over the past two years. You're quite right. We've known exactly how many times have we brought this up on this podcast that we've known for decades, the kind of reforms that the NHS in Northern Ireland needs, and for political reasons, the reforms have been put off because they may be unpopular in the short term. They may mean, you know, shutting down smaller hospitals, centralizing services at larger hospitals, and doing all the kinds of things that in a normal, functional, sophisticated society, politicians would see it as their duty to do. Absolutely, let's not pretend that the problems that the NHS is facing is exclusively or, or even mainly down to the COVID. And let's stop using it as an excuse not to do other things because you're, you're right. I mean, people have returned, I think, in Northern Ireland more or less to, to life as it was before, but we've got, all, we've got a hangover of kind of uh, coronavirus bureaucracy. All it's achieving, it, it, it's not even, it, I'm not sure it's driving down cases or doing anything else. All it's achieving is making the lives of uh, business owners difficult. Things like having to be seated during hospitality, the, the, the various uh, social distancing laws that remain in, in hospitality, although not in any other aspect of life or soon not to be in any other aspect of life. All of these inconsistencies, absurdities, and areas where we're lagging behind the rest of the UK are becoming less and less acceptable as we move on into the winter and and, uh, the vast majority of us. Let's face it, the vast majority of us are double vaccinated and it just kind of goes to show the 
paucity of arguments that now we're talking about was well, is it 89% is it 90% we need to get up to 93% what you know what what is because we are never going to be in a society where everybody is going to be vaccinated is going to be vaccinated it's just not happening in the past few weeks there has been that announcement about the increase in national insurance contributions uh, the barna consequential uh, in northern ireland seems to be around 400 million uh, there seems to be uh, additional funding going into the system. Our health and social care is, of course, already integrated. Well, to a point. There's already additional funds into the health service to, to deal with COVID specifically and the aftermath of COVID. We've got a substantial sum of money. We've got no plan. There is a an election maybe, let's say, two to six months away. I don't think any of the parties in the executive should be forgiven uh, for entering another uh, election without a clear public plan for health and social care going forward. And that is clear and costed and that we know what to expect uh, from Stormont. Uh, it would be uh, a complete dereliction of their uh, duty as public representatives uh, to simply come back and say, oh, it's all about the money or it's all about COVID or it's all about something else. But we still don't know how to deal with the perpetual crisis uh, that has been allowed to happen uh, over the past 20 years that it seems only to get worse other than in a short period when we direct rule uh, in the in uh, the mid uh, 2000s wouldn't it be nice if uh, wouldn't it be nice if one of the parties went into the election saying specifically we want to take uh, the, the health ministry and we our, our aim if we take the health ministry is to put into place um, you know, the Donaldson report or a, or a revised version of the Donaldson report for 2021 and, and to implement it as quickly as possible. Yeah, I, I'd still like to see the plan. I'd like, I, you know, I, mean, I mean, beyond simply saying there's a report on the shelf and would like to do what it says, yes, but, but actually the, tell the reason, us what that means. The, the reason that I, the, yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> and I mean, uh, partly I'm being uh, a little evasive here because it's a long, long time since I've read it, but the doc, yeah. the, the mm-hmm. merit of the Donaldson report, as opposed to Bengoa and uh, a lot of the other uh, it was specific your care, it was very specific about which hospitals should be closed down yeah. and which hospitals should be expanded and how services um, should be improved. And that's why I'm that's why I'm mentioning the Donaldson report. Of course, if you're writing a manifesto, you have to uh, find a more uh, kind of specific. And, and relatable way to do yeah. it than, than mention the Donaldson report. But to my mind, uh, the Donaldson report was something that was concrete and specific. And ever since we've kind of been cycling backwards in a way of, gen- of, of making it more general and, and, uh, and, and arguable and kind of trying to um, wriggle away from the actual specifics of what we need to well, do. Uh, having to make tough decisions. I think that's the... That's the, 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 the square root of it. Um, I think the, the other, um, just slightly moving on, but of course, one of the issues that's going to arise in the coming months will be uh, medicines and the protocol. Uh, that's still rolling around. Indeed, the protocol is still rolling around. Uh, we had a, a statement, uh, Ulster Day statement from the main unionist parties and the PUP that the protocol is a bad thing. Great words. I, I still don't really see the actions being taken to actually put some meaning into those words, other than I think uh, Edwin Poots didn't attend a North-South agricultural meeting that uh, 
Nicola Mallon was complaining about. But if Nicola Mallon hadn't complained about not going and issuing some letter to the governments and being all all huffy about it, um, I don't think I would have known that Edwin Poots hadn't attended the meeting because nobody else was talking about it and nobody else, I don't think, cared probably. Yeah, if Edwin Poots doesn't attend the meeting in a forest, has it ever, has it ever happened? <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the, the declaration was... Um, was published on on Ulster Day uh, earlier this week, and I mean, I suppose insofar as it goes, it's welcome. And uh, there's been a kind of a a dearth of coordinated action between the unionist parties. I'm not a proponent of unionist unity at all, and I think no. that, that unionism needs to disband different perspectives and policy ideas and um, just attitudes and, and even uh, kind of you know presentational differences, um, but. The protocol is a direct challenge to our constitutional status and our status as part of the union and as such i think it's very appropriate that they should work together and i think it's necessary that they should work together and um, to express their absolute opposition to to the irish sea border and to this division of the united kingdom that is currently in place so um i welcome it from that perspective i i hope that it's something that they you know, Build upon in order to show to the rest of the rest of the country and indeed to to Europe that the pro-union uh, people in Northern Ireland are speaking with one voice in this because we are. One of the things around the protocol we, we, we're we're noticing, I think uh, we we chat beforehand, uh, is this notion that anything plus or minus is being created almost as a proof of either either side. I mean, the shortages shortages on on, on our shelves uh, are. On the one hand, being blamed on Brexit, but uh, on the on the on the on the protocol, uh, and on the other hand, uh, what we have is also people saying we didn't have a fuel crisis because of the pro. Uh, you know, there are issues with the protocol end off, and those are are uh, structural issues with the protocol. Shortages, as we've seen in England, <laughs> can arise at any moment uh, out of blind panic. You know, I, th- I think you mentioned the Dansk Bank had downgraded uh, economic yeah, well, indicators? I mean, I mean absolutely. The whole of a sort of nationalist and pro-EU Twitter has been running around retweeting this Guardian journalist who says that we've got petrol in Northern Ireland. Now, our petrol comes from um, depots in, in Great Britain anyway, and uh, Scotland has plenty of petrol, and this is absolutely nothing to do with the, the protocol whatsoever the fact that we've got uh, you know plenty of coke and, and hamburgers is presented as some great boon as well you know it it, it, it doesn't uh, bear scrutiny when you look at the kind of wider economic picture and if you're doing that you know that Danske Bank have downgraded uh, their prediction for growth in Northern Ireland this year because of supply chain tensions that, that are arising out of the protocol. And again, we have people who are pointing to growth in the economy, and it's a very sort of specific set of circumstances in which there's growth in the economy, because we stopped the economy last year. It was always going to grow. If it hadn't, if it hadn't grown, we would be in serious, serious doo-doo, as it were. And again, you know, Northern Ireland's economic activity is getting back to something like normal, but that's mainly down not to the fact that the private sector is getting back to normal, but the fact that the public sector has finally gone back to work. Um, oh, I think I think that's a bit harsh. I mean, I mean, 
I, I don't really understand that stat, given that, of course, our public sector were always at work, Owen, because they were always at work on their computers at home. They never slacked. Them, their economic output must have uh, slipped. Yeah. We're getting back to normal on that on that sort of um, scale of things, but uh, we're we're nowhere nearly back to normal in terms of the private sector. But no. the point, anyway, is that you know when you look at the kind of macro picture of what's happening to the economy with the protocol, it has a negative it has a negative effect. And as actually, I speak as somebody who felt feels that. Even if it didn't have a negative effect, it would still, still be, be wrong because we want to be treated like the rest of the United Kingdom. We are an integral part of the United Kingdom, and that is the political. Um, and of course, that's a negative impact. That's a negative impact with only a small aspect of the protocol in place. Uh, there's lots more to come. Uh, one of the issues uh, I think I've seen the past week is the potential for increases in energy prices because of the uh, of new EU, EU rules that are coming in. Um, you know, th there's lots coming down the line that we don't even know of yet because of the attachment to Europe, which is itself facing shortages, not least in energy supply, because Russia has actually uh, reduced gas supply uh, by 25% into Europe at the present time. So yeah. you know, there, there are pressures all over China on goods uh, because China had a hissy fit with Australia buying to Western values. Uh, they, they're now uh, suffering from a lack of the type of coal they need for their power stations, which they had originally sourced from Australia, cutting many factories down to limited uh, production uh, and creating outages in parts of the Chinese economy. So the supply of goods will be slowed down on that if the logistics of things uh, weren't already in a bit of chaos point I saw on a, on a good little thread on, on Twitter, and I'll put that up on the website eventually about uh, the impact of COVID on world trading and kind of suggested it didn't use these terms, but to me, it suggested a bit like uh, whenever I was in London and there'd been a tube strike on a couple of days and it took uh, about a week for the tubes to get back to normal because it wasn't lack of drivers. It wasn't lack of stock. It wasn't lack of, timetable. It was simply the fact that the trains were all in the wrong places. Wherever they'd ended up wasn't necessarily where they ought to be. And it just took a little while for all those things to kind of get back into sequence. I think we're seeing that from COVID as well. The world trading system has had a shock uh, through COVID and, and, and other factors. And it's just taking a while for everything to work its way back. Uh, and that is going to mean more shortages than whatever. And if we keep shouting Brexit at it, it's not going to do any good and it's not going to bring anything back. Yeah, I mean, the, there's the kind of um, ghost of the, the dreary steeples uh, almost to, to the way that people look at these things in terms of Brexit, because you're right, we've had this pandemic, which, you know, it, it's going to be the defining occurrence of, of our lifetimes almost. I mean, it may be that the, the sort of the fall of the Berlin Wall is, is the only thing that is even slightly comparable. But I mean, that this is going to be the thing that this era is remembered for and it yeah. has caused massive disruption. It continues to cause disruption. And now we're trying to put things back together as we move towards some form of normality. So, uh, I mean, just standing around, say everything's uh, due to Brexit is daft yeah. short-sighted and it just shows you know how 
kind of tunnel visioned and obsessional uh, people can get whenever this is the lens through which they they kind of shape their worldview. We mentioned there that our own elections might be between two and eight months away. I mean, depends on what happens politically and whether Stormont survives. There's now talk of when the next election for Westminster is going to be. Uh, And at the moment, it doesn't have to be until 2024. But there seems to be a a, a pundit consensus, if you like, uh, around the possibility of uh, an election in either May or autumn of 2023, 18 to 24 months away from an election, uh, a general election. The Labour Party spent most of its conference uh, largely arguing amongst itself still, which is, I think, what Labour Party has been doing for decades, probably, bar uh, a brief interlude with Tony Blair. Keir Starmer made a very long speech, which, like his 14,000-word essay, nobody much bothered to listen to in, in, in completeness. But it at least allowed him to end with a, a long idea of who he is and what he wants to kind of achieve, which seems to be a sort of a Blair light or a Blair left. And people are so desperate for him to be a possible winner that they're prepared to forget everything else uh, because there wasn't much content in his speech, I don't believe. I haven't seen anybody really tell me what his speech was about yet. Well, yeah, I think he very accurately sort of explained what he's about, which is uh, being long-winded and uh, not saying very much. So in that respect, it was the perfect Keir Starmer speech. And yes, it, it did because um, there was dissent and there were hecklers that kind of gave him a chance to, to portray himself as the leader and as, as somebody who's bringing uh, people together and, and as somebody who, who has a, a kind of firm hand in the tiller. I, it's actually probably to his benefit that, that that happened. And I mean, I suppose if we're looking at it from the perspective of entertainment, it was, uh, it was kind of a throwback to the old, times when conferences were places where parties played out their differences and um, I was uh, reading recently about um, the Conservative Party when uh, when uh, home came to be the PM and and the machinations uh, behind the behind the scenes at the at the party conference then so it was uh, you know entertaining if nothing else I suppose Uh, although you know sitting through a speech probably that's well, yeah, well, I, th- I think he has the advantage of being first uh, with Boris coming next week, is it? Um, I think it's next I, week. I think the Conservative Party conference is this weekend. This weekend so, and, 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 and into yeah, next week. Starts so, this weekend into next week. Yeah, I think it'll be, you know, compare and contrast between Starmer and Boris, which I think is inevitable in, in, in the process. They are very different characters. Hopefully, Boris will be able to set out a more uh, coherent agenda uh, in between the wisecracks that he uh, inevitably will attempt to lighten the mood and and present a positive forward-thinking uh, Britain through his his idea of where he wants to be. Yeah, well, at the Conservative Party conference, traditionally, you always look to Boris's speech for entertainment and to the leader's speech for substance. And now, um, you know, it, it's one and the same thing. So, you know, w- w- will he provide a more um, coherent explanation of what he's about. We've had this, you know, high, high spending kind of conservatism and uh, he's talked about leveling up and, um, you know, a, a lot of policies aimed at maintaining the red 
wall seats that have now become the blue wall seats and everything else. But yes, it'd be interesting to see if he can bring that all together in a way that sounds a little more conservative because um, so far a lot of the kind of conservatism seems to have been lost. I think that's fair. Both parties um, have a lot of work to do to re-identify themselves beyond the contrasting personalities of the leaderships. Uh, okay, on. I know you've got to go and there's plenty of time to catch up. Thanks very much for this morning. It's been a pleasure. Cheers out.